Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 70 for August the 11th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Vanya Schweitzer from our Sophos Labs Croatia. He's a principal threat researcher with Sophos Labs, and uh, we had the pleasure of traveling together last week at Black Hat and DEF CON, which is why there was no chat chat last week. Uh, I didn't find a safe network to, to upload from, and I uh, was enjoying the... Um, I guess the scene a bit. And so I just kind of passed on it and figured Vanya and I would talk a little bit about some of the talks we saw at Black Hat and share with uh, our listeners uh, what our thoughts were as a result of some of these things. I'm only going to cover one news item this week, which is the fact that it was Patch Tuesday and it's hard to ignore that since it has a uh, reasonably large impact on a lot of IT folks out there. So if you haven't gotten the bulletin, uh, there were 13 bulletins covering uh, 22 different vulnerabilities. And really the primary one, anybody, uh, there's two that people need to be really genuinely um, concerned about to get out there right away. There was an IE uh, patch that was critical that included a lot of different vulnerabilities, including vulnerabilities that were used at Pwn to Own this year to win uh, win the contest at CanSec West. So those uh, IE vulnerabilities are finally fully fixed in August here. And that's what, CanSec West was in what, March? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, so a little bit of lag time there for Microsoft, but uh, fortunately, those are out. And if you're an IE environment, which most corporate environments uh, have a good chunk of IE, you probably want to get on that. Um, the other big patch was a DNS server uh, vulnerability in Windows. So if you're running Windows DNS servers that are facing outward, uh, it does allow remote code execution. Uh, the attacker needs to set up a specially crafted um, DNS record to then request it to be looked up through your server. So it's not trivial to exploit. But anything that allows remote code execution on public-facing, outside internet-facing equipment should be a very high priority. So if you're using Microsoft DNS servers, investigate, bind, I mean, apply the patch, and then, um, you know, that, that'll protect you better. Uh, the other ones, you know, there's miscellaneous things in Office and Microsoft Data Access components, etc. Kind of your standard booby-trapped Excel files that can can potentially cause uh, problems, that kind of stuff. So if you want the full scoop, visit sophos.com, go to the support area and search on KB article 43444 and you'll get Sophos Labs opinion and Microsoft opinions and links to all the CVEs. Uh, so moving along some of the stuff we saw, Vanya, we had uh, up first we saw Matt Johansson and Kyle Osborne present some interesting research on Google Chrome OS and I don't, um, I'm not going to quote the clever titles to attract us into coming to some of these presentations. Um, if you want that kind of information, it's on Naked Security. I did write a, a write-up on this particular one. But uh, being that we didn't see this together, I'm kind of curious on your opinions because I know you do a lot of Android research for us uh, at Sophos. And, you know, what do you think of the, uh, the, the vulnerabilities? Well, um, well, the, the Chrome OS one was an interesting one. I, I think you saw it on Black Hat and I went to, later to the DEF CON. Ah, so you um, got to see the more realistic one where they are a little more honest and perhaps a bit rude. Uh, they were not too rude. I think they were still reasonably corporate, even for DEFCON. Um, they they looked at the, the Google Chrome OS or the Chromebooks. Um, they were released uh, as a beta version, I think, sometimes in October. Yeah, I guess. Well, I've been running it for about a year and a half on my own builds. You know, I've been building it at home. But um, I think the, the big first commercial one, the Samsung, Samsung Chromebook, yeah. came out about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. Okay, well, the, that was the, 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 the real release. But oh, the, you're the talking beta, about the, the, beta, the beta version. Yes, exactly which was a little bit longer before that. So these guys tried to find vulnerabilities in the operating system, and they were actually really surprised that the operating system is nothing more than 
a Linux kernel and, and a Google Chrome browser, and, and that's about it. So, you know, if you find something, a vulnerability in Google Chrome, then perhaps you'll be able to compromise the whole system. Yeah, it'd be interesting to per perhaps do a follow-up sometime. I did some research uh, during the early development of Chromium, uh, the, the open source version, and there's some really clever things of the way it partitions different types of user data into different encrypted chunks on the disk and how it certifies the boot environment. It really is enough of a deterrent that there's no point in attacking it. You may as well attack Chrome because it's a lot holier. Uh, inherits all the possibility of problems with WebKit and and the idea that Google wants to make it very pluggable since you're not going to run applications in quotes. Yeah. You got to have some extra functionality in the browser that really exposes a bit of a rich attack surface is I guess kind of what they were talking about. True. They were mostly talking about the extensions because they said if the mobile world is application or app crazy, then the Google Chrome OS world is more of an extensions crazy because to have any sort of interesting and useful functionality you really have to install extensions for, for for google chrome browser yeah i guess it really starting to rule chrome out as a uh, enterprise opportunity at all whether because anything you find in chromium or chromebooks you're going to find in chrome on the desktop as well and you know a lot of us have already been saying well it's not really ready for enterprises because you can't control the update update cycle you don't know what version you have at any given moment um, which was kind of bad, but some people were willing to forgive that. Now we move on and go, well, you've also got all these applications that you really can't prevent the installation of and the vulnerabilities that they contain can affect everything else that's going on in the browser. So if I've got a tab open to salesforce.com, data could be robbed out of that by bugs in the tweet deck plugin for Chrome OS. And if you give me access to Chrome, you've kind of blown the doors open to making my desktop have a virtual Chrome OS laptop almost, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Google is very much proud of how secure Google Chrome browser is. But, you know, if you install an extension for it, you really have the access to, as you said, all of the tabs. And this is exactly what the, what the guys which are presenting the, the paper were actually doing. They they tried to create the malicious extension for Chrome. And, and from what it seems like to be, they, they managed to do it. Well, in fact, they showed that the, one of the shipping extensions with the Chromebook that was from Google was vulnerable to cross-site scripting attacks. Um, they were able to leverage that. Of course, Google had already fixed it before the presentation. Good on them. And it sounded like Google was cooperating very closely with these researchers to try to figure out, you know, how can they take the approach of remaining as flexible as they can to lock down some of these problems because uh, it was mostly cross-site uh, JavaScript stuff, right? Yeah, it seems like there is a, a, a whole uh, framework available for JavaScript that allows you to jump between the different tabs and in, in, even inject some Java code into tabs. So if you can inject JavaScript code, then you know all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes for a rich user experience, theoretically, because I could get Facebook notifications in a different tab while I'm surfing a website if there was a plugin or something to do that. But obviously, it leaves the barn door pretty wide open for um for for malicious content. And we also know that from his well, you know, from the Android side, that Google's not really looking at anything that's getting uploaded to these marketplaces or uh, the Chrome Store. I think is what they call the stuff for the Chromebooks. But yeah, I think the checking is really minimal. So I, I'm I'm treating it the same way I treat most things from Google, which is at home. I really enjoy my Android, and I think Chromium is quite fun to play with. And there's a lot of neat things to do with it, but. I wouldn't dream of bringing it into the workplace or putting sensitive data on it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an open environment where you're relying on the user to make intelligent decisions about what they just did is actually dangerous or not. Uh, moving on to the next one, we I had, um, and I don't know, did you see uh, Moxie Marlinspike did a fantastic presentation on um, why we don't and shouldn't trust certificate authorities as they exist. 
Yeah, yeah. For me, that was the best presentation of, of that I've seen in DevCon and Black Code in terms of the, the way how it was presented and material. Uh, maybe not as technically strong presentation, but it was really good. Yeah, well, he's a great presenter. And I, I've been on a bit of a rant for a few years now, ever since I started uh, writing for for this office website that, you know, the certificate authority system is just kind of worthless. I mean, I ignore it. It's not helpful. Um, and he kind of pointed out why that is. And then it's like, you know, once we identify what the problems are with the SSL implementation today, then we can actually address some real solutions to the problem. Um, but first we have to acknowledge, you know, that one cryptographically, the way SSL works now is just fine. The real problem is in, uh, detecting man in the middle attacks and verification and we yeah, know the propagation of trust really you know who verifies that you can trust to a uh, ssl certificate well and yeah and he pointed out that nearly 200 countries have the ability to generate ssl certificates and basically man in the middle anything they want which kind of means all bets are off i mean uh there's there's no way of maintaining your integrity on a, a network that well, pretty much at all with the current certificate system. So he presented a solution he calls Convergence. And if people want to check it out, it's available as a plugin for Firefox from Convergence.io. And uh, I've been playing with it. Unfortunately, it's incompatible with the Sophos web appliance, of course, because we forge the certificates for everything so that we can scan it from malware. Uh, so at the moment, there, you know, there has to be um, some other method uh, to make it compatible with proxies and things that are designed to provide security as opposed to spy on you. Um, but nonetheless, I was playing with it at home and, and it's quite clever. I mean, I guess the idea is to make sure when you're at Starbucks that you're not being involved, you know, a man in the middle using Moxie's own tools like SSL sniff, basically ping third party servers and ask them to retrieve a certificate from their view of the internet. And then you compare the two. And so if you're worried about the Department of Homeland Security spying on you, then you may want to actually ask the People's Republic of China server what they see, because they're not going to cooperate with the FBI in order to scam you into uh, spying on your Facebook messages or your Twitter tweets or whatever it is you're doing, uh, and vice versa. So, I mean, there's almost, an, a, there's almost a benefit in the lack of trust between different entities on the internet so that you can ask mutually distrustful people what they see. And if, and if you trust that they won't cooperate, then you can kind of detect if you're being, uh, you know, spied on, right? Yeah, you just ask like many, uh, I think he was calling it notaries and he yeah, was yeah, also re releasing, yeah. releasing the server code. So if you wanted you, you and your friends that can set your own notaries and share it with your friends and then just simply allowed like differential view of the same, same website certificate. So it's it's a kind of very simple idea, but it could be quite effective as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's quite clever. I, I'm certainly I've already been playing with it with my uh, with my Linux host to see if I can get one up and uh, set it up. I know he was saying the EFF is likely to to prop up a few of these servers to assist the uh, the adoption of it, and and um, you know I, I think it would be interesting if it does get adopted to actually intentionally choose contrarian organizations to, to see what the truth is if the certificate you're receiving is what you should be receiving and uh, it's, it's a clever idea so congratulations to moxie has a great presentation yeah really good i didn't see this one but you did i'd be curious um so lookout security does a lot of has been doing a lot of mobile security they're actually here on the west coast somewhere i think they're down in seattle and uh, they, they've been focusing a lot on android they have some consumer products they have different things and they presented some research on 
the Android patch cycle, which is another thing that I've written about in the past but not done the research. I just had personal angst and, and anger at my own Android phones of not being able to get my carriers or Google to supply me with things when I know there's a vulnerability that I'm being asked to write about on Naked Security. So what, what kind of conclusions did they come to on the, on the Android? Well, it was quite interesting because uh, they have a, like an, a mobile or mostly Android product that reports the version of the operating system and the patch level that's used by the devices. Uh, I think they have about 10 million devices and they can follow all the manufacturers and how quickly they can actually roll out all the patches. Uh, often we say, well, Google is not really responsive to the new security problems. They don't roll out the patches so quickly. But if you see, like, Google is relatively good or is actually quite good uh, in patching all these uh, problems, uh, while you still have uh, OEM uh, uh, handset manufacturer and your, your carrier. So there's, there are quite a few of these factors which are actually involved. Yeah, so I guess it's important to, to declare there's kind of three tiers before it ever gets to you if you're a consumer that just went and bought a droid from Verizon. Um, you know, first Google has to be alerted to the vulnerability and produce uh, sort of a generic patch for Android itself, right? And then the yep. manufacturer needs to test that against their handsets yep. and, and release it for, in their, yep. for their distribution. Then that goes to your carrier, and it's up to them whether they want to deploy it or not, and they may hold it back for other patches they want to bundle with it. I know my phone actually didn't work very well until I got a radio patch from um, the manufacturer, and so me trying to subvert the process and skip around it and load a patch from Google that wasn't available from my vendor actually broke the radio in my phone because I had the wrong radio firmware to be compatible with their tower. So you're kind of really at the mercy of a long chain. Yeah, it's quite a long chain. And they actually went on a case-by-case -case, case individual exploit vulnerability basis and they measured the uh, half-life, they call it half-life of the exploit or half-life of the uh, patch rollout, where they, they measured the time required for 50% of all of the devices to be updated with, with a new patch. And uh, for some manufacturers, it was actually pretty good or like it was really soon after uh, Google has rolled in the, the patch in the source code tree. And for some of them, they were really uh, not as good, and and some of the the vulnerabilities are not still not patched, and that's why some of the exploits are still really, um, you know, maybe out there. It's quite dangerous. I guess it's chalk another one up for iPhone. I mean, in the end, if you're a corporate enterprise looking at allowing some of these consumer smartphone devices in your network, with Android, you're rolling the dice. Because if you say Android, you could be getting anything. You could be getting Samsung, you could be getting HTC, you could be getting any of a multitude of vendors, some of which may be responsive and even better than Apple, arguably, and others might be worse. But you don't know what you're going to get because unless you specify a device and you have some kind of contractual agreement, it's very difficult to know what you're going to see. Yeah, at least for I, from iOS, like iPhone and iPads, you at least know what you're getting. I mean, it's a single manufacturer and a single operating system. Well, and we complain when they take three weeks to release stuff for iDevices, and yet the reality is almost no one can do it in three weeks for Android. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the average time for Google to roll in a patch was about eight or nine weeks for their Nexus or Nexus S uh, mobile devices. Yeah, and there's a lot more testing involved because obviously there's not just four handsets like the Apple devices, which makes it a lot simpler. I guess there's more than four now for Apple, but it's it's a small number. It's manageable. Yeah, much, much more smaller. manageable. Yeah. And, and we know what a nightmare QAing on 45 different versions of Windows 95 is when we're trying to ship our products. It's yep. a huge effort. And uh, that probably explains some of the time gaps as well. But good research by the Lookout guys. Yeah, it was pretty good. Quite interesting. And it's the kind of data that we need to support our arguments on how we want to handle these devices moving forward. Like we need scientific 
actual data and research where somebody's done that kind of work. So it's very helpful for that to be public. Yeah, yeah, good work. Uh, I saw a presentation that was very personal to me uh, presented by Jay Radcliffe. Um, he's a uh, researcher at IBM, although his his research that he presented was totally unrelated to IBM in fairness uh, to him and his employer. But he showed how to hack um, a, a very common model of insulin pump. And I happen to be an insulin-dependent diabetic, and I happen to also use the exact same brand and model of insulin pump as, as Jay presented and used uh, in his research. And these devices, for folks that aren't aware, are very expensive. Most anything that's medical like this, I mean, these, these devices run between seven and $8,000, depending which country you're in. So it's not the kind of thing that you just go pick up and see, say, gee, I wonder what it takes to hack this. You pretty much have to have one and be willing to take the risks yourself that you're going to brick your pump and cost yourself seven grand to buy another one or even potentially you know, impact your health to do this kind of research. So it's quite brave and important. And a lot of people in the diabetes community were very upset that, that he had done this research like it was a bad thing. But we really do need to put pressure on these manufacturers and the regulatory bodies that produce these things um, to more carefully consider security when they're integrating remote control capabilities and this type of thing. And what uh, what Mr. Radcliffe's uh, conclusions basically were is that talking to an insulin pump via radio waves is totally unauthentic, unauthenticated. There's no encryption involved. There's no obfuscation. There's nothing, really. Anybody can talk to anyone's insulin pump, uh, potentially with the right antennas from up to about a mile away, can completely reconfigure it without the user knowing that anything's been done. So, I mean, you could certainly easily cause someone a great deal of discomfort, if not kill them, by doing this type of thing if you were to perform these activities. And it's unfortunately, I wouldn't say it's trivial to perform it, but it's not that difficult um, to do what he demonstrated. And he did do a demo. Hopefully, this is a bit of a wake-up call, certainly for our American listeners. The I'm sure the uh, FDA and the FCC will be interested in looking into these things because currently it's a multi-year, multi-million dollar process to get these devices approved. And it appears that Things like securing remote access to them is not really a consideration. So we don't want to mention the vendor or get into any of that kind of stuff. I don't need lawyers calling me, but um, there's certainly uh, concerns there. And and if you're in, and unfortunately, you can't disable the radio in these things either. So it's always bad when there's not a choice to make a, a secure decision that's inconvenient. A lot of times, security is inconvenient. We all know that, and it's it's unfortunate. But you know, having a 25 character password is quite inconvenient. But if you want to do it you are increasing your entropy and arguably you're more secure. And um, unfortunately with these devices, about the only thing you can do is put on a, and build a little tin foil hat for them and uh, hope that there's nobody sick enough out there that wants to attack you. So there's no way of upgrading fir firmware or anything like that for no, the device? No, they're permanent. And, and generally, the lifetime of these devices is seven to eight years, depending on um, whether you, you know your insurance company covers them and this type of thing. But you know, I've had my device uh, here in Canada. They're not covered for adults, so I had to pay for mine out of pocket. And I'm not replacing it until I either have a warranty or a reliability situation because uh, I don't really have $7,000 in the drawer to, to go purchase another one. So and there's no way to patch them to my knowledge. Although I, I have kept a close eye. Um, I had a warranty situation with mine a few years ago and it appeared when I exchanged it for a new one with the manufacturer that the new one came with a newer version of firmware on it so clearly the manufacturer has a capability but there's no field way of managing them that way and uh, even though it does use a serial number to talk to the device the serial number is only six digits so um, brute forcing that is honestly unfortunately trivial
yeah so that that's interesting stuff we'll see i'm sure there'll be some more developments around that because it certainly it kind of woke up the community of other people that are having embedded medical devices that are operated via radios to start asking these questions and we should all be asking these questions if we're going to spend this kind of money on a device the manufacturer should be accountable for assuring us that there that that type of safety has been considered yeah i think it's a good research because uh it, it will probably prompt other researchers to look at some other medical devices i don't know pacemakers or whatever there they can be controlled or measured from the sort of distance using radio waves yeah and i don't want to get rid of the radio from my device it's a very convenient thing to have i mean there's there's a there's a lot of lifestyle improving things that occur because this device is capable of these things so i don't want the manufacturers to get scared and run the other direction but it's clear that they didn't put much uh, effort into the engineering of the security side of it. And uh, if we can all work together, maybe some of us that know a bit more about security can contribute and we'll end up with a better next generation device. Uh, we can end with kind of a fun one that we both saw, uh, Jason Scott of archiveteam.org. Um, fantastic presenter. Yeah, yeah, great presentation. I, I was just waiting for him to start doing magic tricks. He had his top hat and his beard and he uh, i was waiting for maybe penn and teller to come out on the stage because we saw him in the penn and teller theater at the rio it was really entertaining yeah it was great and and for those of you that aren't familiar with archive team uh jason's in charge of it and their their mission is to preserve the internet that was and not allow our digital past to disappear i guess would be uh, a way of summing it up and he talked about some of the challenges of uh, rescuing, what was it, GeoCities, and there were a few other sites like that that had been taken yeah, down. Yeah, GeoCities was the biggest one, and that was the, the biggest effort, but they don't really choose. They just take whatever is possible. Because poetry. Every, even, even the smallest site means something. It's quite you know important for people who actually created the site. So taking it offline is really not an option. I recommend going to his website. There's some fantastic stuff he's dug out of these archives of things he's he's saved and, and rescued and collected. He talked a bit about rescuing the Usenics, uh, or not Usenics, sorry, the Usenet archives uh, yep. on a, a whole ton of tapes that were there and GeoCities and Lulu Poetry and... Um, and, and there were some touching things in there. I mean, people go, okay, GeoCities is a bunch of trash. And of course, he found some really funny stuff that was quite fun to share with the audience. But there were some really touching things, you know, people that lost their children that had put up little memorial web pages and things too that, that have a right to be online. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, commercial businesses like ourselves have to make commercial decisions. And sometimes the, the public disagrees with that. So Jason's a bit of a uh, archive superhero. Yep. And tries to, to preserve the digital past for the future to enjoy. And if you like um, guys digging construction signs from 1990s Netscape Now web pages uh, and that kind of stuff, he's got an entire archive available that you can comb through and play with and, and experience all these great things that he's rescued. Yeah, so. I think that this area will actually become more and more important as more big websites will going to be closed down, then you really want to preserve and, and leave them for some future generations, really. Well, Moore's Law is on our side a little bit on some of this stuff. When you know He started mentioning archiving GeoCities, and I think it was all of a terabyte. Yeah. These days, I can go buy a three terabyte hard drive, right? Now, that hard drive, I might have to keep copying it every few years to ensure the integrity of that archive. But um, it's, a, it's doable, right? Like something as enormous as GeoCities can fit on one hard disk now. And as long as the things stay online alive long enough that they become old, as long as they're old, they're easy to archive. And as long as the weapon. vendor who, who is owner of the site doesn't recognize that you're actually crawling the site and try to block you in, in, in some way. I would like to see some legal precedent there. It's not their content. I don't care if Yahoo owns GeoCities or not. Uh, the content on that website is contributed by the people that generated the content. It's their content, and they chose to make it public. And if somebody else wants to make a copy of it and retain keeping it public, 
Uh, I don't know how Yahoo has any say in it. I, I really don't. Um, I mean, I'm sure legally they have some sort yeah. of say in it, they but have, I don't think they have they the right to change their license agreement. And you know, that's that's all. When they change it, they can do whatever they want to do. But if we want digital libraries of our past, then we have to set some precedent to ensure that we can preserve it. Yeah. So that, that's why this work is. If people want to volunteer useful. help, go out to archiveteam.org. I'm sure Jason would be more than happy to have some more pairs of hands and more random tunnels for the big guys to block their their IP addresses as they're siphoning down the stuff and trying to get it before it disappears. And uh, that wraps up Software Security Chat Chat episode 70. As always, you can get our podcasts on iTunes uh, via RSS feed or on Stitcher. Um, for the latest news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.